Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. If you want to dismiss your children for Children's Church, uh, now is the time to do that. And kids, you can head back to uh, the middle door where Pastor Brian is. And uh, the children will be returned uh, before the conclusion of the service. You will get your kids back. So, uh, The rest of you, please open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there is a paperback Bible. There should be a paperback Bible <clears throat> underneath one of the chairs uh, close to you. And you can uh, pull that out and open to page 563 page 563 in the paperback Bibles. If you don't have a Bible and would like to take that home with you, you're welcome to do that. <clears throat> Very quick uh, announcement uh, for you to consider. Um, we are going to uh, have a, a get-together here at the church on March 26th. That's a Saturday night from 6 to 8 p.m., and we're going to be showing a film called Sabina. Sabina. And this is about um, uh, a woman who was very eager to share the gospel with the Nazis um, who had basically killed her entire family. And so it's a very powerful story. Uh, my wife has seen the movie, says it's uh, very good. The Voice of the Martyrs are promoting this movie. And so um, would just encourage you to come just to uh, be with your brothers and sisters, but also to be inspired by the faith of this godly woman. So six to eight p.m. Saturday night. <clears throat> I think we'll be in the fellowship hall, I think. Is that right? And I'll be here in the sanctuary. <clears throat> I'm told popcorn will be served, we think. Candy. Okay, candy. Movie candy, yes. Um, so uh, we're looking forward to this, and I uh, would encourage you to consider uh, friends and family who would be interested and invite them to come along. 6 to 8 p.m. Saturday night, March 26. All right, let's turn our attention here to, <clears throat> to God's Word. Um, this past week, my wife and I and Ife, we uh, went to, uh, out to eat uh, at a restaurant during lunchtime, and we were waiting there in line. We had ordered our sandwiches, and we were kind of walking down uh, to pay for our sandwiches, and um, we noticed behind us there were these two women who were dressed as Marines, and um, had just a, a brief exchange with them. And uh, we noticed that behind them was a, another woman. And so we're kind of moving our way down. So we got to the cash register, and we paid for our sandwiches, and we, and we moved on. And then the two Marines stepped up to pay for their sandwiches. And the woman behind them, she stepped up and said, I'd like to pay for their lunch. And um, you know, I overheard her say that and noticed that. And uh, then Mary and I had our sandwiches, and we were walking up to the drink machine. And I look over next to Mary, and she's got tears in her eyes. Tears in her eyes from just seeing a simple act of generosity. I think we all acknowledge, don't we, the power of generosity, particularly when we are the recipients of it. But not only just when we are the recipients of generosity, even when we merely witness it occurring. Uh, maybe the most well-known verse in the Bible is Acts 20, 35. You probably don't recognize that reference, but the verse goes like this. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Right? That's the verse that almost everybody knows from the Scriptures, and isn't it true 
that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Acts of generosity always move us. They're always powerful. They always get our attention. And there's something in us where we all know that we ought to be generous. So we are continuing our sermon series here on our core values here at New Life. And as Brandon mentioned, although we were in the value of discipleship last week, we're going to take an extra week in discipleship this week, thinking about... God's call to us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We take that very seriously here at this church. We value this effort to mature us as followers of Christ. And very often when you think of discipleship, you think of Bible reading and prayer and going to church. But how often do you think of discipleship as involving growth and generosity, learning to be generous? God loves a cheerful giver. The scriptures tell us. And so that's what we're going to be considering today. The Bible gives a lot of commands about generosity, gives a a lot of proverbs about the wisdom of being generous in our giving, but also the scriptures give to us sometimes just real-life pictures of generosity taking place on the ground. And that's what we're going to be looking at here this morning in this passage in 2 Corinthians 8. So if you are able to stand, please do so. And I'm going to read the first nine verses from this chapter. 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians, the second of two letters that Paul wrote to the city of Corinth, or the church in Corinth, I should say, uh, addressing a particular difficult situation which you will become acquainted with here as we proceed. So 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, Paul says this, We want you to know, brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Holy Spirit, would you please come and open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So what do we learn here from 2 Corinthians 8 uh, about generosity? Three things that I want to show you. There's a great model for us of generosity. There's also uh, some instruction about the measure of our generosity and also the motivation for our generosity. So first of all, let's think of the model of generosity. As I said just a moment ago, this is the Apostle Paul, and he is writing to the church in a city called Corinth. Now, Corinth was a very cosmopolitan church or a cosmopolitan city. 
located at a kind of crossroads at, uh, of a, a lot of different sea traffic, which brought in people from different um, areas, resulting in a diversity of cultures and different religions in this particular city. Very artistic city, uh, a wealthy city, a highly sexualized city, Corinth was, so not unlike a lot of large cities in the United States today. Corinth was also a city that attracted a lot of very famous speakers, uh, so kind of a, a main way of being entertained was just to go and hear somebody very gifted in speaking come and talk, and they would collect money for that, and they were kind of famous, and they would come to Corinth quite frequently. And so this is the city in which this church has been planted, and it is to this church that Paul is writing. And he draws attention to um, a particular model for generosity, and the model are the churches in a place called Macedonia. So look to verse 1, and here's what Paul says. We want you to know, brothers, speaking to the church in Corinth, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So he, he wants to report about what's going on among these other churches. And so uh, I have a map here to kind of help you understand where all these places are. So um, <clears throat> this here would be uh, the nation of Greece. It's still the nation of Greece today. You'll notice Corinth right here. So this is where the church was located that Paul is writing to. Athens, probably all of you familiar with Athens. Um, but Macedonia is up here to the north. And if you are familiar with the New Testament, you might recognize some of these names like Berea, mentioned uh, in Acts 17, the Bereans, um, Thessalonica, so we have two books of the New Testament, First and Second Thessalonians, those letters written to the Christians there, and of course Philippi, uh, the book of Philippians, written to the Christian church in Philippi. And so when Paul here refers to the churches in Macedonia, that's who he's referring to, those churches located north of Corinth. So what in particular is the issue? And we learn that from the end of verse 4. If you look down to verse 4, it talks about taking part in the relief of the saints. The relief of the saints. So there are certain Christians that have found themselves in a particular difficult circumstance and they're needing relief. So what is this talking about? Well, here's just kind of a lesson on how to understand the Scriptures. We talked about interpretation of Scripture last week. Well, here's a, another example of how that works. Is very often when we don't necessarily understand what's going on in one passage, we look to other passages to help us fill in the blanks. We say Scripture interprets Scripture, and so we would look to other passages to kind of fill out what's going on here. So... Um, this is uh, Romans 15, 25 to 26. Paul says, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So the relief of the saints here in 2 Corinthians 8 is referring to the church in Jerusalem. There was, um, we think, a, a famine that broke out that caused a lot of the Christians in that city uh, to um, find themselves in great need. So if we back up, just another map here for you. So uh, what I just explained to you was Corinth and Athens and Macedonia. Well, Jerusalem's way over here. So this is the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem, and there is a church there. 
And so there's a great need for them to be helped, and so that's why Paul is appealing to these particular churches. What Paul basically here is doing is fundraising. He sees that there's a need, and he's going from church to church, and he's saying, we need you to contribute so that we can help the saints in Jerusalem. Um, We also see this in 1 Corinthians 16 concerning the collection for the saints as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So that's the setting. That's, that's the background. The church in Jerusalem is in great need. Now here's something interesting to realize is that the church in Jerusalem was made up mostly of Jewish people, Jewish Christians, churches in Macedonia, mostly Gentile Christians. And so here's an opportunity for two ethnic groups who have been in dispute, who have been separated, who have found tension between them. Here's an opportunity for them to come together, an opportunity for the Gentile churches to help the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Now, why is it that these churches in Macedonia are being held up as a model. And here's why. Let's look back to the text. Look what it says in verse 2. It says about these churches in Macedonia that in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. All right, so we learn something here about the churches of Macedonia. They were undergoing affliction of some sort, probably they were undergoing persecution at the time, but even more relevant here is that they were an extremely poor group of churches themselves. They're not just merely poor, they exist in extreme poverty. And Paul goes to them and says, we need help for the saints in Jerusalem. They are undergoing a famine, they need help, and here's this church persecuted, no money, and look what happens. They came up with a wealth of generosity, the end of verse 2. A wealth of generosity came forth from a church under affliction and a church that was in extreme poverty. If there was ever a group of churches that had an excuse for not giving, it would have been the churches of Macedonia. Hey, we're undergoing persecution. This is a unique situation. We don't have time to worry about the churches in Jerusalem. We don't have anything. We're poor. We live in extreme poverty. Why are you coming to us? The church in Corinth, a wealthy church, or a wealthy city anyway, so that made more sense. But why would the churches in Macedonia be called upon? It goes even a step further if you look to verse 4. Not only did they well up with a wealth of generosity, but in verse 4, look at this. They were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints begging and pleading. I mean, people plead and beg to be made rich, but how many people plead and beg to give away their money? And that's what the churches in Macedonia did. And that's why they're being held up here as a model, a model for all of us to consider. What an inspiration these churches in Macedonia present to us. Certainly this description exposes, doesn't it, the weakness of many of our own excuses for not being generous and for not giving. 
It's bad timing sometimes, we say. I want to give, but the timing is just not right. Was the timing right for the churches in Macedonia? Under affliction? Severe poverty? But it's easy to think of those excuses, right? I mean, gas prices are over $4 a gallon. It's not a good time. Inflation. I mean, the economy is probably going to take a downturn. This is not the time to give, right? You can hear that excuse welling up. Macedonian churches could have used a similar excuse. They didn't. They gave with a wealth of generosity. I'm too poor. I don't have enough money. I I look to all these people who live in these big houses and drive these beautiful cars. I don't have the money that they do. They can give, but not me. I'm not as rich as them. I guarantee you, you're more rich than the churches in Macedonia. I guarantee you, you have more resources than they did. They gave. I'll give later. I'll do it later. I'll do it when I get married. I'll do it when I get out of school. I'll do it when I get my raise. Uh, Don't count on giving later, friends. You might not have the resources later that you think you're going to (laughs) have. There's no guarantee that you're going to be richer in the future. You might be poor. You might have more resources now to give than you will in the future. You might not want to give in the future. You might not be alive to give in the future. So here are these Macedonian churches. They have every excuse not to give, and yet they give generously. Friends, we here at New Life, you know, we, we have our, our needs as well. We haven't endured a famine. Um, we, we are not as bad off as the saints in Jerusalem. I, I'm quite sure of that, and there's much for us to be thankful for here at this church. But, um, you know, it does take money to run a church. Uh, we do have somebody coming on board here in June, as we've been telling you about, uh, Sidney Bryan coming on board as our new music and children's director, full-time position. Uh, we have a, a mortgage to pay. Uh, this building costs money. Uh, we desire to reduce that debt. We have a building elsewhere. I mean, this is the newest part of the building, but other parts of our building are getting a little old, and they need maintenance, and that costs money. We want to plant churches, more churches. That costs money. We want to support our denomination. We want to have a wealthy mercy fund to help those who are enduring various needs in our church and in our community. And all of that requires money. So my encouragement to you is to look to these churches in Macedonia and think about the model that they set for us. If you want to know where we are financially, I'm not going to give you numbers here in a sermon, but that weekly lifeline email that comes out on Sunday morning. I don't know if you read that or not. If you're not on the mailing list, let us know. But that comes out every Sunday, and at the very bottom, there's financial figures. that just shows you how we are doing in relation to our budget and expenses, and so I would encourage you to pay attention to that. So that's the model for generosity, the churches in Macedonia. But how about the measure of generosity? That is, how generous should we be? How much should we give? Is it possible to give too much? Uh, I suppose that possibility exists. Certainly we're responsible to pay off our, our debts and to pay our bills and to take care of our families. That would be your first priority. Yeah, you don't want to neglect those, but let's look to see how much the churches in Macedonia gave. First of all, look at verse 5. Paul is writing and he says, uh, referring to the relief of the saints that the Macedonian churches took part in, verse 5, and this not as we expected. 
In other words, we didn't expect them to give very much because they're under affliction and extreme poverty. But actually, if you back up to verse 3, we see how much they gave. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. Beyond their means, they gave more than they had. I mean, we're not told exactly how they did it, but they found out a way to give beyond their means. Now, it's worth pointing out here that this is an isolated event, the famine, the needs of the churches in Jerusalem. This is kind of like a one-time collection that Paul is gathering. All right, so the suggestion here is not that you continuously give beyond your means, because if you did that, you wouldn't have anything left. (laughs) Um, We spend within our means, but there are certain occasions that arise when we need to give beyond our means, and that is what these churches in Macedonia have done. In fact, they've just given a lot. We don't know the amount, but we're impressed because it's more than they could afford. And so very often when we think of our giving, we ask that question, can I afford it? Well, maybe you can't, but does that mean that you shouldn't give? The Macedonian churches, they went ahead and they gave. We have this mention here in verse 6 of uh, this guy Titus. Paul says, We urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So um, if you look later to verses 16 and 17 in this particular chapter, you'll see that kind of Titus had a heart for what was going on in Jerusalem as well. And he just stepped forward and uh, went to Corinth and tried to recruit them and encourage them to give. And so what Paul is saying here is we're sending Titus back to you to remind you of what you said you would do, church in Corinth, when you said that you would give. Titus, we're sending him back so that you would complete the work, so that you would do what you said you would do. And then in verse 7, Paul goes on and he gives this very direct message to the Corinthians. Remember, he's writing to the Corinthians, not the Macedonians. And he says to the Corinthians, as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, and there isn't just a great picture of discipleship, seeking to excel in our faith and our understanding of God's word, our trust in him, excelling in our speech, in the way we use self-control in our words, seek to be encouraging, affirming, and a blessing to others in our speech, and in our knowledge of God's revealed will. I mean, certainly we think of all of those things as a part of discipleship. We grow in those things. We seek to excel in these things, Paul says, but then he goes on at the end of verse seven, see to it that you excel in this act of grace also, referring to the grace of giving. In fact, I think that's how the NIV translates it. See that you excel in the act of giving also. Grow in knowledge, grow in your speech, grow in your faith, grow in your generosity. Why is it that generosity seems to fall off? Why is it that when we think of our money, that just seems to be this private thing that is like beyond um, the attention of anybody but ourselves? We tend to look at our money in that way. Yeah, I'll be sacrificial in a lot of different ways, but don't touch my money. (laughs) Don't tell me how to spend what I have hard-earned. But here Paul is saying, excel, grow in generosity and in giving. Great example of this is in the book of Exodus, chapter 36. Maybe you remember this. They're uh, building the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a place where God's people would come together to meet with God and to worship, a a place similar to a sanctuary uh, in these days. And so the tabernacle was going to be built, 
and people were encouraged to bring their contributions for the building of the tabernacle. And they came with their silver, and they came with their gold, and they came with their bracelets. They came, and they came, and they came, and they gave, and they gave, and they gave, and eventually the workers working on the tabernacle had to go to Moses and say, Moses, tell them to stop. We have too much. (laughs) And so Moses did that. In Exodus, he says, Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. That's what every church longs for, to be in a position where we can do all the work we're called to do and more. We can help more needy people. We can send more missionaries on the field. We can plant more churches that we don't have to just scrape by to do the bare minimum. But that is impossible if the people of God do not excel in their giving. And that's what Paul is commanding the Corinthians to do. Here's another example of excelling in giving in a way that might surprise you a little bit. A woman who gave two coins Remember that story in Mark chapter 12? You have all these people coming to the temple and they're giving and Jesus is there observing and he sees that the rich were giving their large sums and a poor widow comes along. Not just a widow, but a poor widow, someone with virtually nothing. She puts in just two coins that equals a penny, it says. And then Jesus assesses the situation and says, do you see that poor widow? She gave more than all of them. Now, does that mean that the two coins were worth more than the large sums? No. So why does Jesus say she gave more when quantitatively, no, she didn't? Why did she give more? Because she gave sacrificially. She gave until it hurt. She gave in such a way that it pinched her. And so if you're looking for a measure of giving, I think it's an appropriate question to ask. Do you give only to the extent that it's comfortable? Does your giving pinch you a little bit? Is your giving sacrificial? Can you say that? I mean, Jesus looked at the woman and was just amazed at her generosity, even though it was just two pennies, because it was all she had. So you might be thinking, well, where do I begin? Where do I begin to start giving? And I would suggest this, that you start planning for how you're going to give. Start putting forth a plan. In other words, don't just give whatever happens to be left over after you've done everything else you want to do, because if you do that, you won't have much to give. But take it off the top. And what the Bible, or the word the Bible uses to describe this is a tithe. This is what we say when we mean tithing, a tithe. That word tithe actually literally means 10%. So technically, if you give, say, 2% 2 to the church, you're giving a donation, for which we're grateful, but it's not a tithe because it's not 10%. Tithe means 10%, and this is the place where Christians begin to develop the habit or the pattern of giving. Uh, We can look back to the book of Malachi, chapter 3. This is God speaking through the prophet Malachi, he says, will man rob God? He's speaking to Israel, and he says, you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? 
And the answer is, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Bring the full tithe, not half a tithe, not a tenth of the tithe. What God is saying is that when his people don't do that, they're they're robbing him, they're keeping from God things that rightfully belong to him. Randy Alcorn says, tithing should be considered not the finish line of giving, but the starting blocks of giving. Friends, this is the place to start. You can give more than your tithe. And that's what we're seeing with the Macedonians, giving beyond their means. That's what we're seeing with the widow, giving everything that she had. You can give more than your tithe. But if you're not giving anything, start with the tithe. Start working toward the tithe. And maybe this seems overwhelming to you and you just think, I just don't have the resources. Well, you know, here's a way you can start. How about give 3% this year, 3%, maybe another 3% next year. So you're giving 6% and 23. And then by 2024, add 4% and you're giving 10%. Gradually grow into it, phase it in over time. Start small and get larger. Friends, you can designate how you give also. Again, you can give specifically to missionaries. You can give for our debt reduction here. You can give for church planting. You can give to our denomination. You can designate that. And we would be happy to make sure those funds get to the right places. But you've got to plan. You've got to think about it. You've got to calculate it. It's not going to happen automatically which is something that Randy Alcorn tells us. Tithing is not a tip thrown mindlessly down on a table after a meal, but a meaningful expression of dependence upon God. Tithing requires calculation. The measure of generosity. Let's shoot for 10 and see where the Lord leads us to go from there. I I should mention also something Mary and I did, I'll just share this idea with you, is that we set up um, a mercy fund where we just set up a separate account at our bank and put a certain amount of money in there, and we call it Mercy Fund, and it's just there for whatever situation we might need that requires some kind of charitable giving. And I'm not saying that to hold myself up as some great giver because, um, you know, I haven't always been the best at at managing my money, but um, it's an example of how to plan. It's an example of how to think carefully about how you're going to be ready to give. And so perhaps that will apply differently for you. But let's go on to the third thing, the motive or the motivation for generosity. The motivation for generosity. Here's my big concern at this point in this message is that you're all right now feeling really guilty. (laughs) And you're, you're feeling maybe like, okay, I guess I better start giving, or I guess I better give more, and, and you're, you're thinking of it perhaps, you know, as, as this obligation. Maybe you think I'm manipulating you. Maybe you're feeling a little coerced right now using these dramatic stories to try to get your money. I, I hope you're not feeling that way, but I want you to know that that's not what motivated the churches in Macedonia. They, they were not motivated by guilt They were not motivated by shame. They were not feeling coerced. Look back at verse 3 again. Paul says this, They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will. Or another version of the ESV says, of their own accord, of their own sincere desire. They, they, They didn't feel pushed into it. They didn't feel 
manipulated into it. In fact, you go down to verse 8, and Paul says, I say this not as a command. He's saying, I'm not trying to command you to do this, Corinthians. I'm not trying to manipulate. I'm not trying to, to coerce you. What I'm just doing is showing you what the Macedonians did, and I'm trying to show you, Paul says, why they did it. And so that's the question we're going to ask here. What is the motivation for the Macedonian churches to give as they did? Well, again, verse 2. Look what it says, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Their extreme poverty came together with their joy. And it it looks like joy transcended. It looks like joy won that battle because even though they were uh, in poverty, their abundance of joy welled up and somehow they were able to give as generously as they did. But the motivation for these churches in Macedonia is not guilt, it's joy, friends. They gave out a joy. Now you might say, okay, does that mean that I I should only give when I feel like it? I should only give when I'm feeling joyful? Well, no. Because remember, we're talking about discipleship. Discipleship involves a certain amount of discipline and getting into healthy habits and patterns in our life. If I could quote Randy Alcorn one more time. He says, the path to cheerfulness is not by abstaining from giving, but giving even when we don't feel like it. If we're not cheerful, the problem is our heart, and the solution is redirecting our heart, not withholding our giving. So yeah, there are certain times we're going to give when we don't feel like it, but the bottom line motivation for these churches in Macedonia was, was joy. Now, here's the next question. Where did they find that kind of joy? How do you find a joy that would make you overwhelmed with generosity when you don't have anything? Let's look back to the text, verse 5. Look what it says about the Macedonians. This, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. That was their priority. We're going to give ourselves to Jesus first and foremost. That's our number one commitment, first we give ourselves to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us, you know, there are secondary things, but their top priority is giving themselves to Jesus. And if that's your top priority, if Jesus is the one you want to please more than anyone else, if he is the one you worship, if he is the one you depend on, if he is the one you look to in all things, you will be able then to part with your resources, trusting him to provide in all your needs. They gave themselves first to Jesus, the Lord, But who is this Lord? And what did he do? Verse 9. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What did he do? That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This Lord Jesus, rich with the Father in the heavenly realms, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit together, the triune God in perfect, blissful happiness for all eternity. That's where Jesus was. He was rich, and yet he became poor. That is, he left the throne room of heaven in mercy and love, and he entered into this sin-stained, sorrowful, troubled, war-torn world. He came into this place. He walked on this earth 
among people who did not recognize him, people who rejected him, and people who eventually hung him on a cross. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He became obedient and even obedient to death on a cross, gave himself up, laid down his life, shed his blood, all for your sake. All for your sake, all so that you could be rich. He gave up his riches for you. He took upon himself the poverty of our sin and gave to you the riches of his righteousness, of his love, of the promise of eternal life, of his Holy Spirit, adoption into his family, justification before the law of God. He gave all of those things to you freely. So what Paul says here in Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's what it is to be rich, friends, to enjoy every spiritual blessing that is offered to you in the gospel. And because the Macedonians believed that, their hearts were filled with joy. And because their hearts were filled with joy, it resulted in generosity. And so, friends, when we're stingy and we're cheap and we withhold our possessions and our money we just have to ask how much am I really getting and understanding the joy that is there for me in the gospel so friends as Paul says here we want you to know brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia so I want you to know (laughs) new life about the grace of God that was done through the Macedonian churches I want you to consider them as a model, giving in their poverty and their affliction. I want you to consider them in terms of the measure of their giving, beyond their means, more than expected, and I want you to consider what motivated them, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the joy that is to be found in a relationship with Jesus, the one who takes the poor and makes them rich. So friends, how will that affect your generosity? How will that affect your willingness to give? We're going to close in song here. So musicians, if you want to come forward, now would be the time to do it. A song that will remind us well of these things. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord God, we pray, please help us to be generous. Help us to be givers. Lord, help us, Father, to give not only to the church, but to all who come to us in need. Father, help us not to be stingy with our resources. Help us, Lord, to magnify how good you have been to us, how wealthy we really are, how much we have, and that these things are given so that we may use them to bless others. And we thank you most of all for the gospel of Jesus Christ that takes poor people like us and makes us rich. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.